you're with talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course, we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton are among high profile figures named in US court papers detailing the connections of late sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Captain Hindsight, Keir Starmer, sets out his flip flop pitch to become Prime Minister as Rishi Sunak hints at an autumn election. Plus, a talk TV exclusive is revealed. Three devil dogs were destroyed every single day last year. Many XL bully owners are now avoiding the ban by moving their dogs to Scotland. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. For the next two hours, we'll be taking you on a journey through all the big stories of the moment, without fear, without favour, without hesitation, and without wavering from our intense desire to get at what is really happening out there. We begin with the explosive Epstein files in which more than 170 people are being named as associates, friends, and even victims of the former financier turned Fengali and collector of famous people. The high-profile list doesn't just include Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, Leonardo DiCaprio and Donald Trump. Michael Jackson is in there as well, as is Stephen Hawking. Kevin Spacey gets a mention, so do Bruce Willis, Naomi Campbell, Kate Blanchett and Cameron Diaz. The bombshell 1,000-page document has been made public for the first time, which takes readers all the way back to the start of this century, where Prince Andrew and others were said to be cavorting with teenage girls at parties from New York to the Caribbean. Tonight, we'll talk to Daphne Barrack, a woman who is as close to the story as anyone has ever been. It was Daphne that managed to persuade Ghislaine Maxwell to talk last year on The Jeremy Kyle Show. We'll find out exactly what those named on the list are going to do now. And the questions most people will want answers to are why Prince Andrew remained friends with Epstein even after he knew he was a sex offender, and what it all now means for King Charles and his recent attempts to rehabilitate his brother. That's not all, of course, because today was the day both Sir Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak fired the starting gun for this year's election. Now likely to be in October, we'll be analysing just what they're both offering us and whether Reform UK can throw a spanner in the works. And as day two of the junior doctor strike comes to an end, we'll be asking why their union is deliberately refusing to answer a call for help from stricken hospitals who say they need more doctors to come back to work in their A&E departments. You'll get tomorrow's news today with our fabulous panel as well. And of course, we'll take your calls too. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let us get it on. Now, imagine, are you surprised by any of the names listed in the Jeffrey Epstein court documents released last night? You can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate. But last night, hundreds of pages of court documents related to Jeffrey Epstein were released, naming dozens of associates, not least Prince Andrew, whose name appeared at least 67 times across the more than 900 pages. To discuss the details of what arises from it, Royal Commentator Richard Fitzwilliams is here with me, and we're also joined by host of the To Die For Daily podcast, Kinsey Schofield. Welcome uh, to both of you. But first, I'd like to start with senior TV interviewer and documentary filmmaker, who conducted the exclusive interview with Ghislaine Maxwell for Talk TV last year, Daphne Barrack. Daphne, welcome uh, to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, quite a story. Um, Thank you, Mike. You're right in the middle of it. Um, I, I'm <laughs> going to start you off with um, what we have here on a front page headline from the Metro newspaper. Andrew in orgy on Epstein Island is the headline. Um, quite a revelation, quite a headline, quite a leap. What are you making of it all? 
I'm actually, Michael, much more in the front seat of things than I ever intended. I usually am a political interviewer. Uh, Virginia Jeffrey and I met in Washington, D.C. quietly. I actually like her. Hmm. And uh, she's a sex victim. There's not even a, a, a question. Maybe not all the allegations are accurate, but she is a sex victim. And sex victims tend to, to confuse dates and people and everything. And uh, she is communicating with me almost daily. So... Um, uh, it's a big, big thing for her because she she dared and and went and uh, filed the lawsuits. Um, and apparently, this is where we are. On the other end, I am very close friends of some of your royals, including Sarah Ferguson, who is one of the closest friends for my husband and I, as a Duchess of York. And uh, of course, she she uh, resides with uh, Prince Andrew. Yeah. So I'm getting it, and then she's a victim too because yeah. she has done nothing wrong. His daughters have done nothing wrong. He claims he did nothing wrong. I mean, it was a bad, bad mistake of judgment, error of judgment to say what he said on the BBC interview and not to show remorse, but he said he's never done what uh, Virginia sued him for. And the fact that he settled, it was because the Queen, the late Queen, really, really, uh, the people put pressure on him, so much pressure because of the Jubilee. He didn't understand at the time that some people would perceive it as if he admits it because he did not. So there are many victims on many other sides. Ellen Dershowitz is a good friend of my husband and I. Um, Virginia said she was confused about his name, um, but he has been suffering a long, uh, long time. And Virginia himself has uh, some health problems that I'm not allowed yeah. to share. It's not easy. No, it's it's a, it's a right old mess. But before we go back to Prince Andrew, let me just talk about um, uh, Alan Dershowitz because former President Bill Clinton has been mentioned 50 times in the files. He says he's never been to Epstein's Island and very uh, much earlier tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored, Alan Dershowitz appeared and he was asked if what Bill Clinton just said there is true. I was having dinner, this is a name-dropping story, with Caroline Kennedy, the former president's daughter, and her husband, and Bill Clinton, and another couple. And the phone rang. This was on Martha's Vineyard. And the Secret he was president. The Secret Service gave him the phone. He went away, walked for about 15 minutes, had a vibrant conversation. I didn't hear it. And then he came back with the phone and saying, Alan, somebody wants to say hello to you. And he handed me the phone. It was Jeffrey Epstein. So uh, this was way before any accusations or anything was suggested about Epstein. But obviously, Clinton and mm. Epstein had a, had a friendship. And in most cases, in my my friendship totally terminated the day the accusations came out. I did serve as his lawyer, but never again socialized with him once I had heard these accusations. I think that's probably true of some people. In other cases, people continued to have a friendship with him, even after he served his sentence in prison. We're talking to Daphne Barrett. Daphne, I mean, what do you make of, of what Alan said there about Bill Clinton? I mean, is it going to be the case that a lot of these names that are linked with Epstein are going to be linked in a way which is not sexual, which is not necessarily wrong. Um, how are we going to be able to tell? Well, Mike, uh, it's definitely uh, it's definitely damaging. I mean, even I mean, many of these names. Um, I mean, most of them are not really uh, accused of any wrongdoing. But just uh, guilty by association is not something that you and I would like to open the newspaper and found your name or my name there. I hosted uh, Hillary Clinton at my home um, uh, in New York for uh, 2008 uh, presidential race. Uh, I know Bill Clinton. I, Knowing Hillary, I'm sure she's devastated of this mentioning. 
it's 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 uh, very uh, inconvenient. Now I understand from Ghislaine Maxwell when I interviewed her, she continued her friendship with Bill Clinton uh, after Jeffrey Epstein was uh, convicted. They had their own set of relationship, but she she admires him. She thinks he's brilliant, and uh, she said that um, Bill Clinton was not on the island. So, uh, but she also told me that um, she doesn't recall that she, Virginia Jeffrey and Prince Andrew ever met in London. And we have these photos that uh, some say it's original. Some may question, but the photo is a photo. So there are many he says, she says. Yeah, there are. May I ask when you last spoke to Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York? Uh, we're, we're talking every night. We're texting each okay. other. And so what is she saying about all this? Because this happened last night. Um, what's she saying? I am not privileged to say. I'm a very, very close friend. And she, just to put, simply put, she saved my life uh, when she asked me to go and check my cancer. So uh, I'm not going to do that for her. Okay. She's a very, very close friend of us. All right. And other people that you still talk to, are they concerned about where this is going to take uh, the next turn, this story? Yeah, I mean, a um, member of the royal family uh, talking to me uh, and definitely they're not welcoming all that. Um, I mean, I think King Charles, which I've known since you, uh, for years, right, uh, believes in unity and believes in extending, uh, uh, you know, an olive branch to as many as he can with with as his family, he just received, he and Camilla received Sarah with open arms, not only this year, as you saw, but also last year. She just opted not to do the walk. And uh, I'm sure that's that's really a, a problem. Um, I said to Sarah many times, uh, uh, that's one thing I'm not going to tell you what she told me, but I'm telling you what I'm telling her, that unless he reverses the BBC interview, and uh, make amends and show some remorse and say, well, I've, I now know better, uh, the shoe would, would continue to drop. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's just, it's just it reality. You know it, Michael, as I do. It will. Daphne, thanks very much uh, indeed. Let's talk to Richard Fitzwilliams, who's with me um, here. Richard, that's pretty devastating. It's the first headline we've seen from tomorrow's papers. Andrew in orgy on Epstein Island. Reading between the lines from Daphne Barrick there, um, it sounds as though Andrew still is very much in the... Uh, in the doo-doo. Uh, in the spotlight for the worst reasons. Yeah. Of course, this is desperately embarrassing for the royal family. Mm. Of course, he denies any wrongdoing, but the facts simply are that in the court of public opinion, that photograph in 2001, mm. which, of course, you've been mentioning, yes. that hasn't been explained, the facts are that there's a cornucopia of horrors that over the years, uh, from the time when he was special... Um, uh, representative for trade. Yes. He lost that, of course, because of Epstein, but there are a lot of unwise friendships before right. that. Now we've got a series of, well, I mean, he's lost his military links, he's lost his patronages, 230 of them, he doesn't use his HRH. He's in a complete limbo. Now, the problem of someone in a limbo also, when they have an sense of entitlement, which he has, which I have to say I think is positively poisonous. You yes. saw that on that news. It's not helping him, is it? It's terrifying, but where does he go from here? I would have thought a job running the royal estates, perhaps, or helping to, and something that involved, firstly, cooperating with the FBI, yeah. if you want any 
possibility. In some way, well, I think this happen. is what Daphne was suggesting, that he needs to reverse what he said at that uh, BBC interview. He needs but to also, acknowledge that he knew this woman. Well, but also, I mean, that photograph's got to be explained, but also if you want to get back into public life in any sense at all, with any official duties, John Profumo is the person yes. that comes to mind, and he did years and years of quiet community mm. work and then became respected again. Yes. And that is the only... I, th I, th I don't think he could possibly do that. But, but Daphne, before I come back to you, let me just bring in Kinsey Schofield from um, California. She's in Hollywood, of course. Kinsey, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for, for waiting for us. Some people thought that with the advent of all of these other names coming mm. out, the heat might move off Prince Andrew a little bit, you know, when you've got people like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, when you've got Bill Clinton being named, um, when you've got a whole series of, of various actors and actresses, Naomi Campbell's in there as well, Michael Jackson gets a, a name check, Kevin Spacey. I mean, how is American sort of celebrity world reacting to all of this? I think you're right. I think Prince Andrew is the lowest on the list here in the States. We are looking at uh, former President Bill Clinton and, and e even curious about names like um, Microsoft's... Uh, <coughs> uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm spacing on his name right now. It's been a Bill long Gates. night as you... Bill Gates, thank you, yeah. sir. Um, so I think we're Elon Musk was one of the names that were alleged to have been on the list. So we're, you know, Americans are definitely combing it for um, some of those more familiar names. Um, you know, we're looking right now at the magician David Copperfield, mm -hmm. who allegedly had a conversation about this pyramid scheme. Um, uh, talking about did this young woman know that other young women recruited women underneath them and, and that they were financially compensated for it. So it makes you wonder how much everyone knew that did hover around Epstein. Um, so I do believe that Prince Andrew is, is lowest on the totem pole when it comes to American media and, and this explosive story here in the States. Indeed. And Daphne, let me just come back to you for a second. I mean, you know a lot of the people involved in this story. You know a lot of the players you understand that you know uh, you knew Epstein, you you know Ghislaine Maxwell. You know what was in it for these people if they were not involved in you know nefarious activity? I mean, if you're Bill Clinton uh, or you're Hillary or you're even David Copperfield, you know what is the point of being friends with Jeffrey Epstein? Money, Michael, money. Uh, you know, I, I think I always thought that there's a triangle in in our world that power loves Hollywood, Hollywood loves. Money, money loves power. You know, it's a triangle. So uh, uh, basically, Jeffrey Epstein offered free rides in his uh, private jet. I'm sure that you and I uh, would welcome private jets more than commercial flights, right, if we can. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was very, very um, generous to Chelsea Clinton, right? She told me that she invited her to a couple of, couple of trips and yachts and whatever. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, you know, it's what we call freebies. Um, so I, I think it, it was really simply the money. Uh, and uh, he was, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, I mean, there's still many answers, many questions about where his money came from. Mm. I mean, whether it was from Leslie Wexner or how did he make it? It's lots of many, lots of question marks. But uh, he did use his money uh, to oil relationship with powerful people. Right. Uh, and frankly, even Bill Gates, I, I'm, I'm talking to you right now too from my country club in California. Bill Gates is one of the members of my country club. Uh, and he's a billionaire. So uh, this is a legit question. Okay, if you're Bill Clinton and you're a politician, you, uh, your bread and butter is uh, financial donations, right? Yeah. That's what it is. I'm hosting uh, 
my husband and I are hosting a, with Tony Lyons the, a big birthday for Robert Kennedy Jr., the presidential candidate, uh, later this month. So that's what it is, right? Fundraisers. But if you're Bill Gates, I'm asking you, Michael, uh, and he's my neighbor. I mean, I have to be careful because I have to go out and play golf. But I mean, I'm just asking, why does Bill Gates, one of the richest guys in the world, right, Leslie, why does he need needed uh, the money of Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah. That's more like a, a, a question I don't have an answer. Do you? No, I don't. I mean, it seems like there must be more to it. That's kind of my point, I suppose. Um, Richard, I suppose you would come to the same conclusion, wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's all very well saying that here's a guy who um, was very kind of adept at, at putting people together with each other, who was a fixer, who was, to all intents and purposes, you know, a friend to the stars and politicians. He was also a sex offender. Oh, yes, I know. And the extraordinary thing is the numbers of people. And, of course, Andrew and fatefully on that Newsnight mm. uh, interview, which yeah. has just become notorious, not regretting it. I mean, that was what people could not believe. Mm. And what well, the other extraordinary thing is that there are two films for television yes. here both dealing with aspects of that that are going to remind people all over again mm. about it. So, I mean, it is quite extraordinary, but obviously this cast of stars that Kinsey was talking yeah. about, I mean, there's no doubt that that will grab attention in America. But anything to do with Prince Andrew, it's completely international because we have the world's most high-profile monarchy. The problem is, if things go wrong, then the publicity is absolutely vast, and King Charles mm. will find it very, very embarrassing. And these attempts, anything in a church is permissible, whether it be a memorial service, it's a funeral or if there's a new dean of yes. Windsor. But anything else is most certainly not and not it's going to be. It's definitely uh, off the agenda, isn't it? Kinsey, let me come back to you. I mean, in terms of the way that uh, the press are picking up the story there, who's kind of the number one um, headline maker at the moment, as far as you're aware? I mean, we're hearing um, that Stephen Hawking has made some fairly interesting inroads into yeah. various scenarios. That's a surprise to a lot of people here um, who didn't really know that he was even interested in that kind of thing. But there we are. What about uh, what about the big names um, who are being kind of outed, if you like, in Hollywood? Well, we can't deny that the, the Stephen Hawking thing is something that I'd love to... That's a mental <laughs> picture I'd, I'd like to get out of my head, OK? Uh, but, you know, uh, it's obviously Bill Clinton. It's this one line that he prefers young girls. And if you survived the 90s, that's... I don't even believe that that's a headline. If you survived the 90s, you're just under the impression that he, he likes any pretty lady, OK? Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think that what we see here is on, honestly similar to what we saw with Weinstein. There were some legitimate relationships are, I should say, you know, Alan Dershowitz, he says that he was completely unaware of anything that was going on. He stresses that. I believe that perhaps that is true with some of these names on the list, because obviously you are going to associate yourself with some legitimate characters that are completely oblivious. So you can say, hey, do you know Leonardo DiCaprio was just on my private jet? You want to come aboard? Yeah. And then you say, of course I want to come aboard. So there are going to be some innocent names on this list because in any sort of scheme like this, there are legitimate relationships. There are innocent relationships because perception is that you are who you associate with. So you're going to want to associate with a Leonardo DiCaprio or a Naomi Campbell. Yes, absolutely. Daphne, uh, one last word from you. Um, do you think Prince Andrew is going to take your advice, perhaps, and uh, talk to the FBI, do something to try and clear his name? I don't know if he will talk to the FBI. Uh, my husband and I had uh, private lunches with uh, his attorneys and we, we, we weighed. Um, I'm, I'm definitely, I definitely tell you, uh, 
uh, right now that he's go he he's very determined to fight uh, the perception that he did something uh, wrong, and the, the settlement was more about uh, to please his late mother and not for other reasons. Uh, whether it was the right decision or not, it's for him to think. I mean, Alan Dershowitz and I think it was a mistake, but we are we were not put under the pressure that he was. Uh, so he definitely is he wants to to fight to fight in court. No. There are other ways to fight, and uh, we shall see soon. But uh, this uh, release of names are uh, basically speeding, I think, uh, everybody's decision of all sides, mm, including Virginia, who uh, who is texting me from Australia. And uh, you know, it's it's a it's something that uh, let's say. Uh, the editors of the Sun, uh, the Sun on Sunday, told me two weeks ago when I was in London over lunch that it would be huge. Editor of the Daily Mail felt maybe it's old potatoes. It doesn't look like old potatoes. It looks like it's huge. It really does. Absolutely right. Daphne Barrack, thank you very much indeed. Kinsey Schofield, great to see you. Thank you so much. Uh, Richard Fitzwilliams as well. Uh, thank you so much indeed to everybody. Uh, we're going to be taking calls on this because this story is not going anywhere. I can tell you that. You're watching the Supreme Independent Republic of Mike Gray. We've got Professor Stephen Hawking named, as I said, alongside Randy Andy in the newly released Epstein Files. Uh, is this true? You may well ask. We'll keep watching. Find out after this break. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Prince Andrew being named in the Jeffrey Epstein court documents unsealed last night didn't come as much of a surprise, but there were a few more unusual names mentioned from Michael Jackson to Stephen Hawking. Uh, to give their reaction to what we've just heard, uh, here we've got a great panel, Director of Communications at Henry Jackson Society, Megan Gittos, um, Editor of Spikes Online, Thomas Slater, and Parliamentary Sketch Writer for The Telegraph, Madeleine Grant. Very good evening to all of you. Um, it's quite a story, this, really. I mean, looking at the headline that we first see tonight, the Epstein files, Andrew in orgy on Epstein Island, that's not even the best story, really, um, in a way. But, I mean, what do you say? What do you, I mean, you've listened to what we heard from uh, Daphne Barrick there and from uh, all the American interests, but, um, Megan, what, what are you making of it all? The fact that a royal is on the front of the Metro tomorrow um, with this story is monumental it huge. is it's going to be difficult to shake off yeah um i know he's kind of moved trying to move on from it and he paid his money or we paid the money yeah um but this well we think the queen gave him the money don't we? yeah whatever it was it's damning evidence on a lot of people and most of the people on the names in the list um of course it's not evidence of any crime being no. committed they uh were either I, I believe subpoenaed or they were just on the flight documents yeah um, but this is heavy. This is really yeah. heavy stuff. He's going to find it difficult. This is because it's it's linked, Tom, isn't it, to to everything? You know, you, there's only so so much you can deny without really properly denying it. Like we were just saying to to Daphne Barrett there. You know, will Andrew finally admit that he actually knew this woman mm -hmm. who he up till now has denied ever meeting, despite giving her an amount of money which may be between I don't know four million and twelve million. Um, will he ever to do with someone you never met? Yeah. yeah. Will he ever cooperate with the FBI? Would that help him? Would it hinder him? Would it make it worse? Bill Clinton, you know, uh, nobody's that surprised that there's a sign saying Bill likes them young. I mean, but Stephen Hawking was quite a quite a sort of um, 
eye-opener, wasn't it? it? It was a striker. We should say that where Stephen Hawking, a lot of these names are concerned, they haven't been accused of any specific wrongdoings. Mm. I think in his case, he was on Epstein's island because yeah. he was speaking at a conference that was right. in the adjoining island and was yes. funded by Jeffrey Epstein or whatever. But it did provide us with um, a very amusing series of memes last night. But I think when the people who are slightly more, if not banged to rights, they've got more of a case to answer, it does tend to be people like Prince Andrew who... Yeah. Prince Andrew being alleged to have done some, shall we say, not particularly reputable things is a bit of a man bites dog story. Yeah. Point, really. So I just don't know how much further his kind of public standing could fall unless there's something more more criminal allegations. Yes. But yet, Madeline, did we not see at Christmas a kind of attempt? It looked like a bit of an attempt anyway to rehabilitate um, from King Charles's point of view, his brother Andrew. You know, because there was a lot of talk about would he be seen at the Christmas walk to church? And yes, he was, um, as was his former wife, Sarah, Duchess of York. You know, so it looked as though Charles was trying to kind of help him out, didn't it? Yeah, it did look like they were trying to bring him back at least into the family fold. Mm. I mean, there was no question that I think any sort of public role for him will will never be on the table ever again. But I think there was an attempt, much, much as the late Queen had done, to kind of suggest he is still part of our family. He's not going to be taking part in public life, but yeah. he still, you know, does belong to this family. Right. But I wouldn't be surprised if if now there were, after these very serious allegations, far fewer efforts on that front. Yeah. Because also, looking at these names, I mean, it struck me when I was reading the, the various bits that I have read, it's like a weird dream, isn't it? You, you know, like, you suddenly there are all these... But you go into the next room and there's David Copperfield, you know, <laughs> you know, doing some kind of magic trick. And then, oh, look, over there, there's Stephen Hawking talking to some people. Um, and meanwhile, I remember watching that Netflix documentary about um, the Epstein house in Florida, and it was sort of full of what you might call rather questionable art and some rather sort of odd erotica that was everywhere, you know, and the pictures of young women. You couldn't possibly be associated with this guy without knowing that he was a sleazy character. I think a lot of predators, it's quite... It's common knowledge. A lot of um, psychiatrists say this. A lot of predators, they get off. Sorry, pardon pun, but um, on sh- trying to put it in people's face, yeah. but yeah, yeah. W- or also drawing back. A lot of the, it doesn't surprise me that politicians or people that needed some sort of money or lifestyle funding, perhaps a young model, were hanging out with him. He was a billionaire mm. and he took everyone to lavish parties. There would be a lot of people who were pretty innocent in this, mm. and in regards to the art or the young girls that he was, they were introduced to, some people really do enjoy that sadist um, kind of hinting mm. at what, yes. depra- what a depraved person they are. Yeah, but watching back some of the Jimmy Savile stuff yeah. when that show came yeah. out, you know, you couldn't believe quite... I mean, the, yeah. the actual proper footage, not just the, the Steve Coogan stuff, but the things he said on television, yes, quite people openly. would kind of be quite open yeah. about what he was doing. Yeah, I w- re-watched the um, Louis through documentary mm. where he meets Jimmy Savile yeah. over Christmas and it was just shocking with with the with with hindsight mm. how absolutely hiding in plain sight it all was yeah. right i mean this wasn't even in you know the 1970s where that kind of loose behavior was more col- common no. and perhaps more tolerated this was made in the late 90s or oh, the yeah. early noughties you know and it, right was, no, it was until... very brazen wasn't it yeah. there was no question about that yeah. and obviously people like um, Epstein exist and I guess it'd be stupid to pretend that they don't. But I just find it amazing, as, as Daphne Barrick said, that somebody like Bill Gates, for example, he doesn't need money. He doesn't need uh, to be told, mm-hmm. you know, you can come on my private jet. He can buy 15 private jets, you know. So there must be something more to the story, is all I'm saying. Well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's difficult, isn't it? Because on the one hand, a lot of these people who are hiding in plain sight, they do kind of get away with it. I think about that Louis Theroux example. He was almost felt like a bit of an innocent mm. in the case of that. And I think there's probably a lot of these people who were just probably a bit in awe of the wealth, a bit in awe of 
him as an individual. And the company. The company, yeah. all of that stuff mm -hmm. that was everyone coming in and out of those islands and those yeah. properties and whatever. But it is striking that, of course, he had already pled guilty to some of these right. crimes way before the sure. charges that we're talking about today really came through. And yet people were still dealing with him. And That's Andrew was one of those people who he remained yes. friends with him. It was but photographed with him in Central Park. Also, also Lord Mandelson. Mm. And Keir Stum was actually asked this today uh, during the, pre the press conference after his, his speech. Right. Um, the fact that it was reported that Mandelson had socialised with him and gone to stay with him in New York, much like Prince Andrew did yeah. after, after the first indictment. Right. It does seem as though it was some kind of almost private, exclusive club that, that was open 24 hours in any part of the world they happened to be in. And I guess rock stars do live like that. And there's a picture of him with, uh, uh, with Epstein in Central Park. And that was, of course, after he'd been convicted of, of uh, paedophile offences, not just that he was suspected of them. And so, you know, Andrew really doesn't have anywhere to go here, I don't think, does he? It's, no, he doesn't. He absolutely doesn't. He, I think um, he needs to go away quietly if he loves the royal family in the way he says he does. Um, I don't necessarily begrudge them being seen with him on Christmas Day. Um, you can't punish people for the sins of their father, if you will, or brother. But it, I, there is no way you can go from this. Yeah. The evidence is stacking up too high. And a lot of the witness statements throughout this whole process have kind of correlated. But I think the most the most frightening thing of that whole documentary that you mentioned, the Epstein one, yeah. is one of the women who uh, were on the trial said his house was full of cameras yeah. constantly, right. constantly, because he was such a... It, he had no friends, absolutely right. no one. He thought always said, if people, if I go down, other people will come with me. And not a single piece, shred of evidence mm. of any of that has ever come to no. light. And this could be them remembering it wrong, or it could have been something that he was just saying to wind one of them up. But, yeah. it, I mean, I'm glad they've made this all public, because the whole thing has looked strange. It's, it's very weird. It, you can't help people who think it's a conspiracy that no. they're covering up. Well, I was going to come to that, but we might have to wait until we can get you guys back in once the other papers come in, because there is um, a, 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 a train of thought, shall we mm. say, that this guy was some kind of a plant for God knows who yeah. to sort of keep an eye on the rich and famous or to get dirt on the rich and famous, a compromat, whatever you may want to call it. And maybe that's what he was, but I, I, it's just all very weird to me. But well, yeah. I, th I think it's also... I would also think that some of these... Some of the unfolding of the allegations today, and looking actually what is in black and white, it's a lot of stuff that we already knew. I think mm. that it's actually, if anything, has exploded some of the grander claims of he's the sort of linchpin of some sort of international sort of paedophile yeah. of all these global people. It was clearly one very depraved individual with some very depraved people around him, and some people who have some questions to answer. Yeah. But I, I do think it's important that we don't um, indulge or play into that kind of conspiratorial yeah. mindset that flares around everything, because it can mm -hmm. take what is clearly a very evil set of crimes. Yeah and try to turn them into something fantastical, and you, yeah. which is And there's a lot of that easy. going on on, on on social media. MT says, we all know that if these were ordinary, everyday people, that jail would have come to them before now, but entitled famous rich people get away with it. Mm. Uh, Ruben says, our leaders are the worst examples of humanity. Not surprised at all. Uh, we'll get on to that more when we talk about the elections coming up as well. But for the moment, thank you very much uh, indeed. You're watching the one and the only independent Republican, Mike Graham. Keir Starmer's feeling pretty confident about his election prospect after accusing Rishi Sunak of squatting in number 10. But is your future safe in the hands of the snake charmer? Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On his visit to the East Midlands today, the Prime Minister fired the starting gun on Britain's next election. Meanwhile, in Bristol, Mr Flip-Flop Keir Starmer tells us Britain's future rests in the public's hands.
This is your year. The opportunity to shape our country's future rests in your hands. And that is a New Year message of hope. The hope of democracy, the power of the vote, the potential for national renewal, the chance finally to turn the page, lift the weight off our shoulders, unite as a country and get our future back. Yeah. Uh, the hope of democracy, the power of the vote, seems to be out in paperback in all good bookshops. Anyway, do you remember what he said back in 2019? I'm really pleased that whatever outcome the next Prime Minister puts before us, whether that's a deal of some sort or no deal, uh, we've agreed that it must be subject to another referendum. Um, and in that referendum, Remain must be an option and Labour will be campaigning for Remain. That's a really important point of principle. I'm equally pleased that we've reached consensus on this, that trade unions are behind it, uh, the shadow cabinet's behind it, and I know it's what our members want. Nothing like a bit of consensus. Uh, we do love a leader who sits on the fence. And with me to discuss our box of election selections, talk TV's political correspondent Lisa Fitzgerald and journalist at The Independent, John Rental. Um, guys, welcome, and uh, thank you so much for coming in tonight. Um, I love watching Keir Starmer, particularly uh, when he flip-flops around and uh, makes a new statement about hope. I mean, the only hope he's really looking at is that he hopes he gets elected, isn't he? Well, he's hoping he wins the election. And, and why not? I mean, there is a strong mood, of mood for change in this there country. There is. Um, which I suspect is going to overcome the defects of Labour's uh, policy platform, which are uh, many. many. Yes. Uh, but the Tories <laughs> are doing such a dreadful job yeah. of taking it apart when they should be... They should be really putting Labour under pressure. Well, of course, and they say not, they will put them doing... under pressure, don't they, Alicia? Because they're saying that... I mean, I was listening to James Sundon the other day, and I know he's not necessarily a, a leading figure in the Tory party, but people in the Westminster party in, in, in the Tory group say, yes, we will lower taxes, yes, we will manage to get inflation further down, yes, people's standard of living will return, and, you know, we haven't lost the election yet. Well, this is it. So I think what Starm has been doing until this point is really trying to keep his policies under wraps for yeah, that he's exact doing a good reason. But yes, that's, that's very true. <laughs> it's because he knows that the moment he sets things out in stone and firmly yeah. says, "This is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it," the Conservatives can easily jump on that yeah. and say, "Hang on, we're going to do it just one step better, and we yes. maybe costed it a little bit better and thought about it just that one step further." Right. So Starm is just trying to be a bit tactical yeah. here, and that's why he hasn't said exactly what he's going to do and when. The trouble. Is, the closer we... But, I mean, they can't keep that up, can they? They no, can't keep he, saying, he, until he, we see the figures. He tried figures. to pretend today... I mean, he was asked a, he was asked a question by the, by the FT, and he tried to... He bamboozled them about how he'd have had intensive discussions mm. with global investors about yeah. how they were going to achieve um, decarbonising our electricity right. by 2030. 2030 is five years after they take office. Yes. It can't be done. No. And but also, he you, cannot you were, explain how it's going to be done. And you were tweeting today about his, his announcement and the various questions that he was being asked, and he more or less started um, with this idea of, you know, the new energy company that he wants to form. And by the end of the, the answer, he'd more or less walked away completely from it and said, well, of course, if we haven't got the money, we won't be doing that. <laughs> yeah, so he exactly. might as well say anything. <laughs> so it, was, it wasn't at all clear. No. Um, I mean, A, what his policies are, and B, whether he intends to uh, fund them at all. This mm. is it, though, isn't it? This is only going to stand for so long. This right. has worked until this point. He's been able just to ride off the back of failures that the Conservative Party have made, and yeah. that really has just done all that it needs yeah. for Keir Starmer. That is really enough. But as we approach the general election, that may not be enough. Mm. I mean, I don't mean that and say that he isn't going to win. It does it like he probably will. 
That said, though, lots of the public just really want to know exactly what yeah. he's going to do and when, because just riding off the back of another party's failure isn't always enough to win an it's election. Not. And also, I think there will be a lot of questions, John, about who is going to be in the front uh, uh, bench, who's going to be uh, the officers. You know, the one thing we always agree on is that when Tony Blair came in in 97, um, they might not have been particularly experienced in government, but they were pretty substantial individuals around uh, Tony Blair, uh, like Gordon Brown. You know, I mean, you know, Starmer doesn't have a Gordon Brown, for example. Well, he has he, a Rachel Reeves. I, like even, I say, even, he even doesn't better. have a Gordon and Brown. No, she's, not she's, even better. No, she's not, no, she's, she's, not undermi- she's not undermining him at every turn and trying to try well, to no, get his job. Well, no, but we didn't know that that was what Gordon Brown was doing. Yes, we did. And actually, did. And actually sometimes... <laughs> well, that's because he was saving for a book. I mean, sometimes you need to have somebody who wants to undermine you in order to keep you on your toes. There's nothing wrong with that. But I just don't see anybody really on the front. I don't agree that Rachel no, no. Reeves is some, you know, mathematical West, genius. West, West Streeting is West Streeting, I give good. you. I give you West Streeting, but nobody else. Darren Jones. Nobody else. Never heard of him. Come on. I have never He's heard of Darren Jones. He's come on TV a lot. Really? Yeah. He's never been on my show. I mean, I'm sorry. It sounds like he could be in a boy band, for all I know. <laughs> and I mean, literally, seriously, I mean, if you walk down the street, you have to have recognition if you want to be in government. And if you're not recognised by the general public, well, who this guy won't be, yeah. West Streeting won't be recognised by a lot of people either. You know, and that's an issue. Yeah, but I mean, I think in opposition, you you do have a recognition pro- uh, recognition problem. You do. As, as, I mean, the, the thing is, do people recognise Keir Starmer? Well, um, and do well, they, that guy in the pub in Bath recognised him and threw him out. <laughs> you know, that's the other problem he's got. The other question I wanted to ask Alicia was about reform this week because Richard Tice is, you know, an old friend of ours, old colleague of ours. He's gone to pastures new. Um, uh, and he's now, um, you know, finding his way through the sort of mainstream media interview uh, sector. Um, how do you think they're doing? Reform specifically. So this was really interesting. Yeah. He did this speech yesterday, right. just really trying to get the party's message out and just say, you know, we actually just don't agree with anything the Conservatives mm. or the Labour Party do, and we're different. And this comes off the back of them saying that they are going to target every single seat mm. across the United right. Kingdom, which sent a few nerves around the Conservative Party. And they are actually allegedly, according to Richard Tice, begging him not to do that. Yeah. Because what it will probably do is split some of the vote share. So any of the seats where the Conservative win could be slightly marginal, really, really small... Yeah. If loads of the voters who would be voting for Conservative, if they didn't have another option, mm. then vote for reform, mm. that will send Labour, the Lib Dems, whoever the second party is, into the wind yeah. there. So that's the issue. And the Tories have got a bit of form, haven't they, for trying to persuade people like Nigel Farage and Newkip and the Brexit Party to step aside to let them actually win more seats. And some believe that if it hadn't been for them doing that at the last election, Boris Johnson's majority wouldn't have been so big. Yeah, well, they, they succeeded in persuading Nigel Farage to stand mm. down uh, in, in Tory seats last yeah. time. Um, and you know, Richard Tice makes no sense to me. I mean, because he he keeps he 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 coined this phrase Starmageddon. Yeah, um, he's good but, with the phrases. He's picked a lot of that up from me. Well, you know, <laughs> I tutored I tutored him for many years. Yes, but if if a Labour government is so dreadful, then why is he making it more likely? Yes, well, because he has to do something to try to and punish reform. the Tory. I mean, well, he wants to reform the Tory party. I yeah, think but, that's what he was telling you. I'm not going to sit here and say what he wants. But he does, well, the yeah. great thing is, is that reform is a good word because every time anybody says reform, he thinks it's a, it's a plus in the Reform UK um, sort of um, column. <laughs> but no, I think, you know, he believes, like a lot of people believe in this country, a lot of our viewers and listeners believe, the Tory party has ceased to be Conservative and they want a proper right-wing option to actually vote in as a yeah, government. Yeah, and they're prepared to have five or ten years of the Labour, of a, of a Labour government of in are. order to achieve it. Which some is, of which them is, are. I'm afraid that is just, that is just a bond. It could be kamikaze strategy. politics, but it will make life very interesting for, for us 
those of us who sit there watching it every single minute. But Rishi Sunak today, I thought, looked very uncomfortable um, as he did finally what um, Harry Cole suggested he should do, uh, which was rule out a May election. Yeah, it was interesting. I don't think anyone was really expecting no. that announcement today. It was meant to be Keir Starmer's big day. Yeah, yeah. All the media were really kind of geared up to talk mm. about Keir Starmer's speech, which actually ended up being not super eventful, as we as no. we heard earlier. But then Rishi Sunak very casually just dropped the fact that his working assumption, and that's his quote, not mine, is that the election will be in the second half of this year. Yeah. Just to clarify, it doesn't necessarily mean it 100% will be in the second October. half. Right. It could He could change his mind. It wasn't him saying this is 100% going to be it. But it's pretty much confirming that his plan at the moment is to hold it in the autumn it's rather not, yeah. than in the spring. Because he won't have been able to do anything to make life better for everybody by May. Well, exactly. I mean, by May, right. I mean, the, the Conservatives it's all still, really halfway still through January. Seven, you know, 15, 17 points behind Yeah. Behind the Labour Party, and no, no prime minister is going to call an election. On that the basis. only issue is, though, and that this is what the worry always was mm. about waiting is that could get worse. It could mm. get better, so it is a yeah, risk. Yeah. It's like Rishi's holding out on the off chance that maybe that poll lead does creep up yeah. a bit more towards Labour. I, I think they're hoping the worse. best they can hope for, which is a, a small uh, Labour sort of minority government. Mm. But there's not many people that would give you odds on that. I mean, I think that's still a possibility, mm -hmm. you know, because they still need to get a massive swing to get through. But what I would say, and you're a student of uh, history, I know, um, that reminded me that Keir Starmer was a sort of cut-rate version of the town called Hope. That Bill Clinton uh, made yeah. a speech when he accepted the nomination for uh, president back in whenever it was, 1990. Yeah. I think it was. And then and then we had Barack Obama offering the Hopey Changey thing. Yeah. Um, so now Keir Starmer's doing the Hopey Changey. Yeah. Well, anyway, listen, I hope to see you again soon. Um, <laughs> but I've been told that we're out of time. But lovely to see you both, Alicia. Thank you very much. John Rental, thank you very much indeed. You're watching The Independent Republic, Mike Graham. Up next, I'll be hearing from you, the great British public. And we finally got a politician speaking some sense. It's a very rare occurrence, so stick to your seats. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. Now, in The Independent Republic, we often lament the failings of the police forces of this great country of ours, no more so than the Metropolitan Police, the largest force in the nation, charged with protecting the citizens of London and keeping the streets safe. In recent months, we've been forced to point out that there seems to be two-tiered policing going on in the capital, a place where brandishing an England flag will get you arrested faster than chanting anti-Semitic messages during a pro-Palestinian march. For too long, we have wondered why the upper echelons of our police organisations have become so woke, so quick to defend terrorist sympathisers and eco-warriors, even as they disrupt or damage our way of life on a regular basis. How many times have you heard me urge the Scotland Yard Brigade to move in and arrest Just Stop Oil demonstrators as they bring our city to a standstill and deliberately prevent emergency service vehicles from reaching their destinations? Who can forget how dreadfully hands-off they were during the Black Lives Matter protests of four years ago? And why do we have to beg them to promise that anti-Semitic statements, pro-Hamas flags and banners and jihadi chants would be outlawed in due course on our streets following the massacre of October the 7th in Israel? Now I fear there is worse to report. It turns out that Scotland Yard is now investigating war crimes in the Middle East, particularly those alleged to be being carried out by Israel, without even as much as a buy-your-leave from the general public. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson has already registered his concern for what is clearly a political position the Met has taken. They have even taken to putting up posters at British airports aimed at people returning to the UK from the region, urging them to report anything they might have seen. Boris said, quite rightly... 
When I was Mayor of London, I made it clear that we would not import foreign wars or disputes onto the streets of London. The Met would be better off fighting knife crime in the capital. Well, I couldn't agree more. A spokesman for the Met claims they have a duty to help out any investigation by the International Criminal Court and their war crimes team is simply collecting data. Well, to be honest, I think most Londoners would prefer it if they managed to solve more than a tiny percentage of burglaries, car thefts and stabbings. Leave the war crimes to the war crimes tribunals, guys. You know it makes sense. Now, lots of you have been getting in touch. Let's hear now from John in Newcastle. wants to talk about the junior doctor strike. John, a very good uh, evening to you. Hello. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, thank you, Mike. Yeah. Uh, basically, I would like to just point out the fact of your last speakers. Uh, the, uh, fail- the, the, they talk about the failure of the Tories in the last 13 years. Yes. Who allowed that? Labour did because they couldn't make it in 13 years. They couldn't make one election mm. in 13 years to win. Yes. So I'm sure that Labour's to blame, if nothing else. Yes. In relation to the NHS, mm. I told you once a while ago, I visited France 50 years ago. Yeah. Put the story short, lady was waiting three weeks, twice a month for a, an operation. Back where I live, it was anywhere from 13 to 15 weeks, depending yeah. on the kind of operation. Yes. And so, therefore, I, I learned after being a young man that we weren't the best health service in the world because that is a total difference. I'd mm. rather wait three than 15 weeks. Yes, um, I think that is, look, is definitely the problem. Listen, I've got to run because we want to talk to John in West Lothian. John, uh, John in West Lothian, what can I do for you? Good evening, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the British public need to think long and hard about what they actually want for the next five years. Yeah. Um, we, we've got uh, a leader of the Labour Party who was the mouthpiece for Jeremy Corbyn, who wanted somebody who couldn't care less about this country as yeah. Prime Minister sitting down the street, yeah. who is a, a supporter of terrorism around the world. Yeah. Who, and, and Mr. St- or Sir Keir, I should call him, um, was willing to give away all our sovereignty to Brussels. And he's got a team around him who have no experience and actually are just nobodies, as far as I can see. Well, that's Um, what I was saying earlier. I don't think anybody recognises anyone that's going to be on the front bench of the Labour Party. No, and I think it's it's absolutely disgraceful that here we have a man that that wants to to run the country and and he's Mr Flip-Flop. He will say anything Mm. to anybody in order to try and get a vote. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. John, very well said. Johnny West Lothian there, uh, joining the merry throng of many of you who want to be absolutely and utterly involved in the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are here, of course, all the way through. Coming up after the break, a Talk TV exclusive has revealed that three dogs every single day were put down last year alone. Stay tuned and find out why. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham on talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we're on your smart speaker. Tonight, the Talk TV exclusives revealed that three devil dogs were destroyed every day last year. One XL bully owner is wearing a muzzle in protest against the government's ban. And Carol Vorderman has branded Lord Bailey a misogynist after he said she can't be serious in politics if she keeps posting photos of her body. And stirred, not shaken, yes, I'm afraid, classic James Bond films have been slapped with a trigger warning, but it's not for the use of guns. Stay tuned to find out why. Following the backlash from the XL bully ban, do you think there should be an XL bully sanctuary in Scotland or indeed anywhere? Get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate. But on to something a little bit more worrisome, I think. I really do despair sometimes at the level of political discourse in this country. Thanks in no small measure to the divisive nature of those on the left of all the arguments, it seems, that we can no longer actually have conversations in a civilised manner. All this week, there have been junior doctors slagging off anyone who would dare to ask why they think it's right to abandon their workstation to go out on strike, knowing full well that their absence will cause harm to patients and to the NHS, the one thing they profess to love. Week in, week out, we see feuds being fought on social media and on talk shows between commentators from opposite sides of an issue. And it seems harder and harder to keep these people civil. On the Independent Republic, we pride ourselves on keeping the debates fair, of making sure alternative voices can be heard, as long as they're not overly rude or deliberately provocative. And this is harder to do than it actually looks. This week, we have another example of the dreadful level of conversation, and it involves, as it so often does this time, Carol Vorderman. Now, Carol has taken on the role of social media warrior, a one-woman crusade against the Tory government, and a thorn in the side of what she sees as a corrupt and lying administration. She doesn't hold back when she uses adjectives to describe people she doesn't know, and she's calling for people to be prosecuted and jailed. She makes no secret of hating the party, and she's even had to withdraw some of the allegations she's made in the past about government ministers. But she doesn't like it when the tables are turned. This week, she's going after former mayoral candidate and now member of the House of Lords, Sean Bailey. She says the Tory is a misogynist because he accused her of being all bums and boobs on Instagram while posing as a political commentator. He says she can't do both. She's demanding an apology. But so far, he hasn't offered one. He's wrong, of course. She can be whatever she likes. And it's entirely his affair if he wants to say sorry. But if you give it out, you should really take it. Let's just leave it at that. But could we please try and elevate the debate above the level 
of the school playground. Britain deserves better. It's an election year and bitter and twisted is no way to live. Now, a talk TV investigation has revealed that three XL bully dogs were destroyed every single day last year. The breed is believed to be responsible for up to a quarter of the 14,000 attacks by dogs in 2023. And across all dog breeds, 3,823 dogs were seized by police for being aggressive or attacking a person. A record-breaking 1,230 dogs had to be destroyed by officers across England and Wales between January and October last year. Well over the double the figure from 2022. And those shocking stats come during the same week the government brought in a phased ban on XL bully dogs. To talk about this further, I'm joined by dog behaviourist Hannah Malloy. Hannah, a very good evening to you. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, all of those numbers are quite high, aren't they? And they're quite worrying for anyone who remembers either being in the presence of a, an aggressive dog or uh, having been unfortunate enough to suffer an attack from a dog. But we're seeing a very strange kind of reaction, aren't we, to government policy on XL bully dogs. Why do you think people are being so protective of their rights to have them? I think the difficulty is is the data, actually. Yeah. Um, I think this report tells us two things. One, that we have a dog ownership problem. Mm. So like we see with all things, they say guns don't kill people, people kill people. Yeah. You know what? Dog owners have not controlled their dogs and loads of people have been hurt and far too many people have lost their lives as a consequence. So we have a dog ownership problem in the UK that mm. we really need to address. Um but we also have a data collection problem. And so the difficulty when we look at reports like this is that at, at best, this data is misleading. Yeah. At worst, it's actually wrong. So when people take a police report about a dangerous dog incident, mm. guessing the breed is often what happens. So you might have a dog that has attacked another dog or um, or even a person. And when the police come to take evidence, they might say oh, it's a big dog. Um, and this has been for many, many years now, we have been terrible at naming the breed of dog that has been involved in some of these incidents. And so I think it has been heavily weighted towards the XL Billy. However, if we find that this data is correct and a quarter of the attacks have actually been XL bullies, which have only recently mm. been defined. So that's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, they've only recently been described in all of their characteristics. And yet for a really long time, we've been saying it's definitely an XL bully, but we didn't know what one of those was a year ago. Right. So that's confusing, isn't it? Now, even if we said that a quarter of these attacks were XL bullies, the problem with that is that it doesn't necessarily mean correlation and causation aren't necessarily the same thing. Mm. So the statistic that's often used is that red cars are more often involved in incidences um, than any other colour. So what we've done here is we've banned the red car. So when we see reports like this, what I'm seeing here is dogs who are over threshold and stressed out. This is definitely the what the dog that killed Jack List that we're looking at here. And this dog has been horribly treated, badly abused. And what we never get when we look at dog bite statistics or dog attack um, reports is the background. What happened to the dog beforehand? Where was it bought? How was it handled? I know from one of the reports of the dog that attacked many people in Birmingham, when they caught that dog, and took it to the vets, they found that it was horribly dehydrated. In fact, it almost died. Yeah. So that was a dog that was outside on one of the hottest days of the year, not being handled well, arguably in an abusive environment. And so I think what a lot of people are doing is going, hold on a minute, 
Why are we blaming mm. dogs that we are responsible for looking after, for breeding, for training and for controlling? So most people, I think, are crying out for genuine measures that are going to protect the public and keep us all safe. And we know because of history that banning dogs is not the best way to protect the public. Maybe not. But looking at some of the data here, we're going to bring in uh, Metropolitan Police Officer, former Metropolitan Police Officer, Peter Kirkham. You know, looking at some of the figures here, 1,230 dogs had to be destroyed. That's up over 100%, nearly 150% on 2022. And the number of people killed by dogs, 16, uh, compared to just six in 2022. So there's obviously something going wrong. Peter, um, what do you make of, of, of what you've just heard there? Um, and is she right that, you know, we need to be better at actually, you know, controlling these dogs and, and, and maybe outlawing them isn't the answer? I, I think the two key points that have just been made are, are perfectly valid. Um, the data is anything but perfect. Um, and we have the issue of, is it causation or is it just correlation. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, both of those are, are, are valid points. Um, the first one, data uh, quality, is, is something that bedevils policing generally mm. uh, across the whole of, of crime statistics and everything else uh, to do with policing. You've got the same sorts of problems uh, with the data collection. Um, and, and only when you've got good, reliable, accurate data can you then really start to uh, understand whether there's causation or correlation and that takes time and that involves um, large amounts of data over long periods of time um, and, and the uh, the research continually being finesse now we've not got those things either in this in this area and so um, we're we're flying a little bit blind what we do know is that uh, dogs are involved in causing harm Mm. Um, of, of varying degrees right up to and including death uh, in a very small number of cases um, with uh, correspondingly increasing numbers of instances uh, as each lower level of, of, of harm. Um, and the nature of the dogs involved in those cases, yes, I think we can safely say there's a focus of these types of dog at the higher ends of the scale um, involved in these more serious incidents uh, and that's probably um, primarily a factor of the nature of the animal itself. Um, their power, their musculature, um, their breeding, um, the traits that are actually bred into them for legitimate reasons uh, which then creates a problem when those dogs are not handled properly but it's an absolute truism that the problem is the people that own the dogs yeah. uh, rather than the dogs themselves, uh, for the most part. Yes. So, Hannah, let me come back to you then. If we're going to say, will this decision-making process by the government work, will people actually who are told that they must either get rid of their dogs or they must muzzle their dogs or they must register their dogs, if these are people who, generally speaking, are not likely to obey the law... Are they actually going to do all those things? And, and what do you make of some of the suggestions that many people are sort of shipping their dogs off to Scotland where it's not illegal? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's such a good question. I, you know, I absolutely feel for everybody who is trying to type their dog right now. We are in a really unique moment in time where people are having to decide whether their dog is considered to be an XL bully type 
when the dog licensing officers are still getting the training that they need to be able to determine that legally, um, <clears throat> which is a really horrible position for anybody with a dog this shape um, to have to do. The lay person and yeah. even dog behaviorists like me can't weigh in really on this because it's we're just not allowed to. Mm. Um, I do expert witness um, for dangerous dog cases in court, but I still, in this context, wouldn't say yay or nay to a particular dog because it's such a tricky time. Yeah. So yeah, I totally understand people. That, there are loads of dogs that are never going to um, just flip. Dogs don't just flip. There are so many incidences that happen before dogs get to the stage mm. where they are, you know, bite holding on a human being. That's really extreme. So there are, you know, Ten like thousands of dogs across the UK who are having to have their lives horribly restricted um, by this law that arguably are never going to be put in situations like uh, like this dog beast was put into or abused in the way that this dog beast was abused. Um, and so it's really tricky. And one of the things I think we really need to be aware of right now is the language that we're using around these cases needs some serious work. So right now we're still referring to dogs as devil dogs or hounds from hell. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people in the country who are fearful anyway, and it's leading to, you know, dogs being really horribly killed. And there's a recent report, wasn't there, of a dog who was tied up and burned. And that is because people genuinely believe that these dogs are very, very scary and properly dangerous. And I just don't think we have the data yet that can definitely say that they are because of the way that they look. What we know is there's lots of these dogs. They're very popular um, and of course, pound for pound, um, as my colleague was saying here, you know, they can do a lot more damage because they're big dogs. So I would really love to see that we have better data collection. Definitely really needs improving and that we create the dog licensing agency. It's time we have the DVLA. We can have the DLA yeah. and we can really start to look at where these dogs are coming from, educate owners properly and do something that is going to properly protect the public. But let's go back to Peter there. I mean, Peter, we used to have a dog licence, you know. Um, it got done away with on the basis that it didn't really work because people just ignored it and didn't bother getting one, um, which is not always the best good and good reason to get rid of a law. But is there a danger here that with these new regulations, it'll actually make things worse because not everybody will do what they're supposed to do? And if they do ship them all off to Scotland, um, you know, how is that going to help? Well, I'm not sure that it will make things worse as such. Uh, we've got a situation, I think, where we've got irresponsible um, young, for um, a, a large part, young owners of these dogs that are uh, deliberately having these dogs for aggressive purposes. They like to have a dog that comes across as being aggressive. They like to have a dog that looks the part, as it were, if they're going to be involved in minor crime and, and and try and build some sort of reputation for themselves they like to have this dog to be part of that and so regardless of whatever the licensing regime is or any other regime we put around it they are by far the more likely not to comply with it whatever it is but we've got a key part uh, of the issue there whatever law we have needs to be enforceable a law, a criminal law especially, uh, which cannot be enforced for whatever reason, is really not worth the paper it's written on. And, and that causes problems because it brings the law into disrepute and that 
that feeling of, the, well, the law's there, but nobody does anything about it, that spreads into other areas. We see it with uh, roads policing, for instance, yeah. um, and, and speed limits and things like that. If people know that they're not enforced, then steadily over time, um, compliance with those laws will steadily ebb away and we'll be left with um, a situation where the law might as well not exist. Uh, and we are definitely in danger of that here because the vast, vast, vast majority of interactions that the police or any other agency are going to have with dogs are not going to be anywhere near the seriousness of the relatively tiny number of cases mm. uh, that we're talking about where really serious harm or death has been caused. No. And so we need to ensure whatever we have it is actually practically enforceable or it isn't going to be worth the paper it's no, written on. exactly right. Um, let me just show you something. We saw a picture today of an owner of one of these dogs wearing a muzzle to a pub, which he said was in solidarity uh, with his dog, the XL bully. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe it's just muzzle the people that own them um, and leave the dogs alone. Anna. Oh, bless him. He's doing what he can do, <laughs> isn't he? And do you know what? Again, as I say... We have an issue here with enforcement. Again, for me, if we had a dog licence charging everybody that has an XL bully £92 to register their dog, um, and if we had a dog licence and everybody had to pay maybe £100 for a mm. dog licence, there's 12 million dogs in the UK. That's £1.2 billion. Pounds. Yeah. So when we talk about enforcement and creating a resource to enforce, it's right there. And it's really not that difficult. And I think most people who have had to sign up to this exemption scheme, one of the suggestions that I made was that you were at the front of the curve. And what my heart would be is to see that every dog owner in the UK has a dog licence, has a mandatory education scheme, has their dog microchipped, that we have much better enforcement. So you'd need to be connected to the dog that you yeah. own and responsible for it. And then higher levels of penalties for when your dog is dangerously out of control yeah. in a public place. I know so many dogs like this. You just get goaded by little dogs. I've seen dachshunds go for me <laughs> as you walk past in the same way as that dog in that video had done because they're... Uh over aroused they're just not going to take you know take my arm off because well that's the difference. i mean that is the big difference and that is yeah. the crucial difference isn't it but listen <laughs> hannah malloy thank you very much indeed peter kirkham as well uh, appreciate you coming on uh, this is of course the independent republican mike graham after the break i'll be taking your call so don't forget to get in touch also james bond has been given a trigger warning and it's not about his license to kill stay right there this is no time to die Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at all the front pages uh, coming out tomorrow. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at The Sun, uh, and I can tell you that they will go, as you might expect, on Prince Andrew. Time to give Andrew the chop, is what it says. His prince is named 69 times in Epstein's dossier. The king is told, uh, basically, that it's time uh, to get him out of the way. Quite what that will actually mean, we'll look into. Uh, but it says King Charles is under pressure to punish Prince Andrew and lance the boil after more lurid allegations of sex abuse were branded the final nail in the coffin. It'll be interesting to see how we deal with that and how Prince uh, Andrew is dealt with because he was almost looking like he was trying to be rehabilitated uh, over Christmas time. But uh, we shall see. We'll talk about that with the panel coming up very shortly. Lots of you, though, have been getting in touch. You can have your say on all the socials, of course, on Talk TV and on the phones, 0344. 
499-1000. Let's go to Morris, uh, who's in Peterborough, wants to talk about the snake charmer himself, Mr. Keir Starmer, or Sir Keir Starmer, you might say. Morris. Hello, Mike. Yes. Good evening to you. Yes, thank uh, you. What do you I, want to say? I, I've had the privilege of living through Labour administrations hmm. from Gatskill... Oh, gosh. That's I, a long I, way I just, back. Well, I go a long way back. You, Gateskill. Well, uh, yeah, all right. Well, which, which was the best administration that you went through? Oh, probably Margaret Thatcher's, but um, only because I think she actually achieved something yes. in her administration, and so few prime ministers have actually done that. True. And then, then when we got through to Tony Blair... Oh, Lord, help us, mate. Uh, with the best will in the world, you could not think that could anything worse could have happened to this country than yeah. his, his administration. It's true. Um, but something worse but, than that but, has but, happened, but, but though. Then, but then David Cameron actually uh, more or less trumped it by, by, by siding with the Liberals. And uh, <laughs> we needed Clegg. Oh, my, oh my God, yeah. Well, what about Starmer, though? I mean, where would you put Starmer in all of that kind of, you know, the pantheon of uh, mediocrity? Where would you put him? Well, I don't even think he becomes mediocre. I don't even know what he is. I, I think he's less than mediocre. I think he aspires think... to be mediocre. Yes. And, 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 well, I, 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 maybe he's aspiring to mediocre, yeah. but nobody knows... What he is, who he is, or what he wants no. to do. No. And by the, believe me, going back to Hugh Gates School, at least we had statesmen in those days. Well, we did. Of. We and, did indeed. Well, but there wasn't a lot fewer states as well. We had, had, I'm sorry, I lost my memory for a moment. Don't worry. We had Harold Wilson after that. Yeah, and, listen. Listen, I'd love to go through every single Labour politician uh, that was in Downing Street, but we'll do that another time. As we get closer to the election, Gareth in Derbyshire, he wants to talk about an election Thank in you, May. Mate. Gareth. Mike, nice to speak to you. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? Yeah. Well, I've just heard this so-called announcement by Rishi Sunak today that the election is going to be in the second half of the year, yes. he says. But, you know, I just can't see beyond the 2nd of May is the election date, to be uh -huh. quite frank. Why? Because, well, I just can't see how the Conservatives can go through the council elections. I mean, whatever you think about Rishi Sunak, I think he is reasonably sensible. Mm. And, uh, you know, if they go through the council elections and then you go through the summer, I just can't see how he can take an election in the autumn. I, I, ju I just think... Yeah. I just think he's throwing a wobbly to them. And I think, he, bear in mind, he only has to give 25 days' notice to call an election. Yeah. So he could call it at the end of February. He could. And, and I, I just think the economy and the so-called... I mean, I mean the, whether there's going to be a recession or not is an important aspect of this. Yeah. But I, think, I, I just think the election is going to be in May. 
Yeah, I think he's just hoping that the economy improves to such an extent that, that each month that passes in the, in the 2024 year will get better for everybody. I'm not sure he's going to be right about that. But listen, um, we should watch this space. It may well still be in May. You know, you can't always believe everything they come out with, can you? Um, but no, let's talk about no. uh, 007, because 007 fans have been stirred and not shaken because the BFI, the British Film Institute, have slapped a trigger warning on some of the classic films. Why, you ask? Is it because there's a man with a golden gun with a view to kill? No, it's because apparently modern audiences may take offence. Uh, you can take solace knowing that here at the Independent Republic, we have no time for this woke nonsense. And joining me now is a Bondian expert, host of the Really 007 podcast, Tom Pickup. That's a surname worthy of Bond himself. Welcome, Tom. How yes, are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Great to join you, Mike. It sounds actually like one of those Bond girl names, doesn't it? Not Tom Pickup, but, you know, Sally Pickup or something <laughs> like that. Are you sure you didn't just make that name up? <laughs> Sadly not. I was born with it, yeah. Oh, well, okay. My wife doesn't take my name, though. <laughs> Very good. Now, I mean, what's going on? The British Film Institute is supposed to be celebrating older James Bond films, some of them with um, uh, Roger Moore in, I think, which are famously, you know, of their time, famously, you know, slightly irreverent, famously... I mean, they're not my favourite Bond films anyway... But, you know, why would they issue a trigger warning? Because surely if you're going to go and see them, you see them in all their glory, you laugh about it, you move on, you go home. Yeah, and the thing is, because if you go to the BFI to watch them, you've probably already seen them, haven't you? It's well, you hope for so. The man on the street, it's for Bond fans and film experts. Yeah, I think it's just a, a case of the, the way the world works now. There's nothing in it that I think is so offensive that they need to edit it, for instance, or cancel it. No. There are capable bits which wouldn't be made today, but then you could say that about any fiction, any novel, any film that was made in the 50s or the 60s, 70s, even right up to 10 years ago, there were certain things in the odd Bond film which they wouldn't get made today. That doesn't necessarily make them bad. It just means perhaps they thought the need, let's just in case anyone complains, we'll put this disclaimer. I mean, some, some of the films... If you haven't seen it for a few years, you might get taken aback at the odd bit, but there's nothing in them for me that warrants a need to sort of say, this is this could be really offensive, personally. Well, I think Thunderball is one of them, isn't it? I mean, Thunderball is not in any way really offensive. They say it includes um, racial stereotypes, because I guess that's odd job that they're referring to. Um, um, oh, sorry, that's Goldfinger, isn't it? I've that's Goldfinger, yeah. <laughs> No, but I mean, you yeah. know, the point is, is that, you know... The, there were racial stereotypes in those days because they went to foreign countries and they said things about people in those foreign countries. It's not really something that people are going to get upset about, is it? Well, if you do, you've got to explain the context, haven't you? James Bond was a secret agent at the time he was living in. Yeah. And he went to these other countries that, from an English person's point of view, the audience hadn't seen them either. So it's like eyes onto the rest of the world. Right. There would have been you know, dated attitudes or whatever. But that was that was what was happening everywhere. And I and I always say if you're watching this now with a younger person, you'd say, Well, we don't we wouldn't do that now, but this is this is how it was at the time and we've we've learned from it. You know, you you can spin it in a positive way. It doesn't have to be, look at this Bond film, it's outdated. We don't want to watch it again. I, I just think you've got to be positive about these yeah. things. Well, yeah, I mean, some of the cars are absolutely incredible. You wouldn't say, you know, these are not really nice cars because they're too old and nobody makes them anymore. And look at all the petrol coming out the back end of them. Absolutely. And those are the ones that everybody goes back to, don't they? They always yeah. think about the Aston Martin DB5, which is, what, 60 years old now at least? Yes. So 
there, there are these classic elements. I mean, you're showing the pictures now. When you see Sean Connery looking like Bond, jetting across the world, yes, he's with ladies. Yes, he gets into fights. He's not meant to be the perfect human. That's the thing. And right. um, if you watch these films, you should know that, really. Well, a lot of people complained, didn't they, when they made the new uh, Bond films with Daniel Craig, that they turned him into a bit too much of a kind of a, um, you know, self aggrandizing self-examining individual, a man who felt like maybe he didn't treat women properly. And it wasn't as, it wasn't as good. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, I mean, that's subjective. They tried to do something differently with them. I prefer the Roger Moore ones, for instance, which don't take themselves as seriously. But there is elements of Fleming, you know, that did look at Bond's character. He was a tortured soul. He was always on the edge of death. And you think about the job he's in, it's quite a scary job. And he comes into encounters with these scary villains and things like this. You would sort of have that kind of personality where you wouldn't be a normal person, I think. And I think Daniel Craig tried to explore that a bit more. Yeah. Whether it was a success or not, I think that's up to the, the individual viewers, really. Well, exactly. He was mostly under the influence of quite a few martinis most of the time as well. Um, yeah, thank he was. you very yeah, he much. Just a lot, yeah. He did. Tom, listen, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Now we've got Megan, Tom, and Madeline back. Um, the Bond trigger warnings, I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, what are you going to be warning people about <laughs> forever? Don't watch this, it might upset you. I mean, I heard that some people were getting upset by Ricky Gervais's new um, Armageddon thing the other day. And you just think, well, why are you watching it then if you're that upset? Why would you go and watch a James Bond film uh, if you're that much of a snowflake? I agree. Hmm? I agree. Well, I felt quite triggered by No Time to Die. In fact, I've been on Tom's podcast. Have you? And we just complained about No because Time to Die. Because of the way it ends. Yeah, we went on for like yeah. two hours. I know a lot of people with, are upset with, about that. With, with Tom's brother, yeah. Matt. And um, yeah, we, we all hated it. And to be honest, as a, as a long-time Bond fan, I felt pretty triggered about the fact that they decided to give him a completely different ending to all other Bonds. Yes. I don't want to give too much away. Um, spoiler warning, they kill him. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> the fact that they, they were willing well, to you do... you say that, but you see, I've seen too many things like Dallas and other shows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was actually at the end of it going, hang on, yeah. have they left enough room for yeah. him not to have died? I don't know. Because they might have done. It's pretty clear. I, you're right, though. That's a good point. Like, who, who shot James Bond? I mean, he could thing. sort of, you know, crawl through whatever it was, that yeah. you, the tunnel that you didn't see. They, there's, there's, that's the least of that film's sins. You know, the scenes where he has, like, this child that he's child-minding. Yeah. It's all a bit kindergarten cop. Right. And, you know, he's sort of <laughs> feeding the kid its breakfast. This, to me, is, is the anathema of Bond. Right. I'm not so pathetic that I needed a trigger warning being like, no. we're really sorry, but the, the character that you've known and loved for 60 years, we're, we're going to kill him metaphorically right. and then literally. But are they going to bring back 007 as a woman, though? Isn't that what they're going to do? Well, they actually did have a female 007 yeah. in No Time to That's Die. That's what I mean, yeah. And I actually thought that that was one of the better bits of the film because it was, was quite a great clever. character. Yeah. It was actually a good character, I thought. Um, and the fact, the point is that that's the designation that, that, that was given. And then by the end of the film, she's developed respect for Bond and she decides that he ought to be 007 yeah. again. Right. So she's not the new Bond, she was the new 007. Yeah. So that was actually, I thought that was one of the better bits of No Time to Die. Yes. But they are going to make another film, aren't they? Yeah, and they will cast a new Bond. And I'll be interested to see if they go back to the old self-contained plot, which I think served the series very, very well. There's a reason that with Daniel Craig, in my opinion, Casino Royale was a truly great film. Yeah. But then the problem was that in every film that followed, they're still trying to deal with the loose ends of the last yeah. film. And right. so nothing quite works from a narrative perspective. So I'll be interested to see if they go back to the winning formula of just having a plot that yes. ends. Or maybe just basing it on one of Ian Fleming's books. As yeah. opposed to just making up another story. Well, they've run out of the Ian Fleming books now, so they yeah, they have to make it up. Although, of course, there are new Bond books being written by modern authors. Which sound equally dreadful. Yeah, oh my God. I mean, is, is it Did the Charlie see... Higson new ones? Oh, I've only Jesus. read about them rather than read them, but Same. it seems like James Bond is now 
quite relatively woke, spends his time kind of complaining about UKIP and yeah. who he sees as kind of golf club yeah. racist. Seriously. There was, an ex- there was so. this passage that went viral. I didn't read the book, but my God, it was hilarious. It was basically like, Bond was angry with populism and he didn't like these figures what? like Auburn and Trump. He literally says this. I mean, the next book will probably be like, Bond put on his... <laughs> Um, he put on his New Balance trainers and switched on. The rest is politics. Yeah. Gosh, Alistair Campbell is a perceptive man, said yeah. Bob. You can just that, imagine it. Maybe this yeah. is and a that stroke. Carol Horderman. <laughs> maybe this no. is a stroke of genius, though, because this is what the elite is like now. I mean, the head of MI5, and I bought his MI6, has his pronouns. Yeah. Twitter bio. Oh, of course. So, so maybe true. this is what James Bond would actually well, I mean, be like. Yeah. He would be apologising no, to people for slander him. Yeah, you do worry, don't you, that the spying <laughs> business is not what it was? Maybe. I'm afraid. Um, let's talk about um, what can only be described as yet another infringement on freedom, uh, which is that basically they're trying to get the government's paid influencers to do adverts about wood-burning stoves. I think we've we got one. Um, I'm not sure we've got... Yeah, so that's the advert. So this is presumably to dissuade you from using a wood-burning stove. I don't know if you've got a wood-burning stove. I have, um, and I rather like it. And the only thing that worries me is I don't have enough wood to burn in it. Um, because getting wood these days is harder than actually getting petrol in a petrol strike because everybody's buying wood because they think they're going to have to burn it at some point when they can't afford electricity. Um, But wood-burning stoves, it's a Michael Gove thing, isn't it? He started this. He decided that actually the particulates that come out of Mm -hmm. wood-burning stoves are more likely to cause pollution in London actually than driving a car. Well, he started this war on them a few years yeah. ago, and it now seems like they've got this really conflicting messaging because they wanted to clamp down on them in urban areas because of the reasons that yeah. you suggested there. But obviously, there's a lot of people around the country who are still using them. So what they've been caught doing... Well, is... loads of people, particularly in rural parts. I mean, I don't have exactly. one in London, makes but no... I've got one in the country because, you know, you need them. And you've got space, you know, there's plenty, yeah. there's plenty of air to go around. It'll right. be fine. But it seems like what the government has been doing is trying to speak out of both sides of their mouth. So to they're pushing a campaign for wood-burning stoves are the yeah. worst thing ever. Um, you might as well just be running your car in your garage with the door pulled down. But at the same time, they're also trying to push these, like <laughs> these messages about if you are if you do have a wood burning stove, then you should be using dry wood rather than wet wood. And they yeah. paid all these influencers right. to do that. So um, very. But everybody knows that. Everyone, everybody who's yeah, got a wood burning stove knows, knows that. that you don't burn wet wood. Apart from the fact you can't even light it. So why would you? Yeah I, yeah, I really like them. And they are actually cost-effective for a lot of people. Yeah, they are. Especially that live in They're the really country. warm as well. They're very warm, and you don't have to put your heating on for, and heat your whole house. And actually, for a lot of people, they're probably more energy efficient. Yeah, they are. So I really like them. And I'm not meaning to sound like a conspiracy or theorist here, but I do think it's the next thing that is going to be banned, if you like. Right. I do think it's... Because it... it always travels in this trajectory it's um health adverts about it and then it's banned and i just think yeah it's ridiculous but it's I've... a little bit like when you know you hear people like michael gove um, who spends most of his time obviously in london talking about what people should be doing to heat their homes and when they go outside of london you don't really they don't really realize that an awful lot of people have oil yeah. for example yeah. remember during the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the time when they were paying yeah. people's electricity bills i think in northern ireland 70 percent of homes are heated by oil you know, and in parts of more rural parts of northern England, you know, some 50% of houses are heated by an oil delivery man that comes around. And there was nothing given to them. Yeah. Nothing at all. Well, I've often thought this about energy policy mm. in general, that it seems to be designed around the needs of people who live in an urban area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another one that really gets me is, is um, the electric car revolution, yeah. which, you know, is going to require a vast infrastructure across the country. Which it doesn't, it's never going to happen. It's all workable, exactly. And I was just thinking, you know, my family live in the countryside in Warwickshire, and they only got... 
like decent internet, proper working internet yeah. a couple of years ago, because there, there are not many residents right. near them mm -hmm. and they live in what's called a not spot. So it hasn't been financially cost effective for them to have proper internet yeah. until like the day before yesterday. So what are the odds that we're going to have this marvelous infrastructure that exists across yeah. the country and is ready to go? I know. And well, I, I know think you're probably also... rehearsing from, from that other earlier criticism of David Cameron, but you know, David Cameron promised 5G for everybody. I'm very right? critical of David Cameron. <laughs> Um, professionally. Yes. It's just, I can't <laughs> help it. I, I do did miss him for a long time and I am glad he's back. But yeah. In my personal life, professionally, oh, I could criticise him hopeful. all day. I mean, there are still parts of, I used to go down to Corfe Castle for, for, for reasons too difficult to, to comprehend. <laughs> um, and there was literally no signal at all of any kind. And I used to have to go and stand at the top of the high street where there's a war memorial, hold the phone up like that to get an email. It's you know. and, and it's not and like this still like that. It's not like it's in other countries. You go no. to like Central Eastern Europe, you get better connection than you have. Unbel I was in town. Cyprus in the crazy. summer, and uh, the, the internet was amazing. Absolutely incredible. Mm. No yeah, matter yeah. where you were, you could be out on a boat. You could, you know, it was just incredible. I don't know why I was so bad at that. I drove down to Sussex every weekend, and the, the, the same place where the phone cuts out, in the same place, just after Seven Oaks, every single time if you're on the phone. Ridiculous. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did mention Carol Vorderman earlier. What do you make of her little spat with Sean Bailey? Um, I don't quite understand the Carol Vorderman sort of phenomenon that's going on at the moment, where I she's currently turned into this kind of it. slightly vitriolic, um, a bit over-the-top kind of Tory-hating... Um, I don't want to say harridan, because that would be the wrong word. But, you know, she's just become obsessed with the Tory party and seems in incredibly kind of vitriolic about them. Now, there is that kind of rogues gallery that has cropped up yeah. between a kind of Gary Lineker, a kind of yeah. James O'Brien... Jolie Moore and now yeah. into Carol Vorderman. Where it's just this They're all doing of, podcasts with Gary Lineker's company. Exactly. Some it's kind of conspiracy. Something going fishy on there. going on there. Yeah. It's just it's just so tiresome. It's kind of one note. Well, I did a thing today, you know, can we not have a have a sort of debate without being like children in a playground? Yeah. And, sort of and to be fair, Sean, Sean Bailey could have criticized Carol Vorderman without saying yeah. he's, he's no better. things yeah, about no, her. I'm not her saying no. I said he, he shouldn't have said exactly. it. Exactly. But it's, it's there's so much that you could criticize her on. And I think you're quite right that there is now this kind of class of very online people who seem to spend all day just on Twitter frothing just at the mouth. each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it can't be good for their... I don't know. I don't think anyone ever comes away from a Twitter argument saying, well, that was a great use I'm of really my time. It was that, yeah. a fabulous Friday really afternoon. clarify the issues for yeah. me. I just yeah. don't bother anymore. I just start the arguments and I leave everybody else to themselves. And it I, works quite I well, loved, actually. I, loved, I go back every so often. I thought Carol, I loved Carol Vorderman. I mean, she was. I loved Countdown. That was. I always used to watch that yeah. when I was staying with my grandparents. I knew her when show. she used to do Pride Richard and, and Carol, great team. Yeah. What happened? I don't know. It's almost as though somebody flicked a switch in her head and she suddenly decided that you know I now hate all Tories. Very yeah. weird. Um, Shall we have a look at um, um, who's getting attacked? Oh, the judge. Yeah, let's have a look at this. This is good. <laughs> um, this is an amazing video. I don't know if you've seen this from America. A woman decides to say to this guy that she's not actually going to um, let him out, uh, out on bail. And he literally throws himself over the top of the uh, judge's thing. Look at that. Sort of proving her right in real time. Really. <laughs> I mean, yeah. As if, uh, yeah, as if to say, yeah, I think you probably did the right thing by not letting <laughs> that, me go. That is quite the jump. Isn't yeah. it? I, that, and also, as horrible as it is, unfortunately, because of the times we now live in, it, it created all these memes of people going back to WWE and wrestling, <laughs> wrestling guys like jumping into the ring and jumping over each other and all of that kind of thing. Um, London <laughs> Zoo embarks on a two-day job counting 14,000 animals. This is My favourite story of the week. That I think it's something that everybody wants to do. 
counting animals at a zoo. <laughs> yeah, no one told me when I was growing up and picking my GCSEs and things yeah. like that 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 was a career. Right. And I would make completely different choices. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because zoos are now things that you're not supposed to like. You know, mm. you're supposed to look at them and go, well, that's all a bit Victorian. And no, they're thing. conservation. But I've always been quite keen on zoos. I used to yeah. live very near Regent's Park Zoo. Um, and I used to quite like walking around the outside of it because you can see a lot of the animals without having to pay. <laughs> you can see the wolves, you can see the giraffes. You'd be out there with your you stepmother. You can see the bears. Um, you can see the goats on the little goat mountain. Um, you <laughs> oh. hear, I was lived in Primrose Hill, you could hear the wolves at night. Oh, which wow. I, which I found strangely so comforting. Sweet. Did you know that where they were before they went to Regent's Park, the, the animals in the zoo? They were kept at the Tower of London. Oh, really? Oh, what, yeah. the wolves? And it began, I think, all sorts. Like It, it began, I think, in... I think Henry VIII was given a polar bear as a present from the King of Norway. <laughs> right. And they just kept it chained up in the Tower of London. Wow. And then eventually the menagerie grew and then visitors who came to the Tower of London, that was one of many things you could see there. The wolves? Yeah. How fascinating. Crazy. Wow. wow. Fascinating stuff. Well, look, we've got loads of stories to look at in the papers, but before we do any more, uh, let's have a look at Plank of the Week because that returns to your screens uh, tomorrow night at 7pm. And here's a little snippet of us ripping into those selfish junior doctors. They're going to spend £4 million on giving gift vouchers to their staff because they've had a hard time. Really? What, really? because of COVID? Are they still going, are you getting I any of these? No, they have to stand outside in the cold holding placards, yeah. poor things. Yeah. They've probably caught a cold. Striking isn't but easy, you know. But you know, <laughs> it's even worse than that. I know that there are trusts in the NHS that are offering their staff to go into a raffle for one of three £500 gift vouchers if they have their COVID and flu vaccines. Oh, oh so they're now paying people to have their COVID and flu vaccine. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, what about Dr. Robert Lawrenson, who's that 29-year-old oh guy? 29? He's, he's nine. He's, he's not looks 29. He's meant to be 29, right? He's always talking about how hard it is to be a junior doctor. Mm. He has a house that he bought, a flat that he bought. It's worth half a million quid. With no, no mortgage. mortgage. Uh, he's, a, he's a partner in his parents' consultancy company. You know, these people are an absolute joke. At 7 pm tomorrow night, Plank of the Week. After the break, uh, we're going to take a trip to the world of woke and we'll bring you tomorrow's front pages hot off the press. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for this The World of Woke. Is everyone sick of this weather yet? It seems to have been raining forever. And if tonight's forecast are anything to go by, it's going to get a whole lot wetter before the morning. And you know what that means? More floods, more blocked drains, more cancelled trains and more shut roads. But have no fear, there is light at the end of that underwater tunnel. Something good on the horizon. Yes, indeed, prepare yourselves for some proper cold. This weekend, it's going to go down to near freezing temperatures for most of the country. And you know what that's going to mean? Frosty mornings, blue skies, a bit of windscreen scraping before you head off to work in the morning. Whether you use the time-honoured tradition of a credit card on the glass or a jug full of water to clear your view on the car, just beware, because you could get caught out by the world of woke. According to the Jobsworth to invent this stuff, it has now become illegal to leave your engine running on a wintry morning while you make sure the car is actually safe to drive. That's right. And it means that you could be liable for an £80 fine, 120 quid, if you don't pay within two weeks. Marvellous, isn't it? Apparently, you will be in breach of Rule 123 of the Highway Code and you might even be breaking the Road Traffic Act of 1998. The rule says this, you must not leave a parked vehicle unattended with the engine running or leave an engine vehicle running unnecessarily while that vehicle is stationary on a public road. 
Of course, you'll also be spewing out carbon monoxide, nitrogen dioxide and hydrocarbons into the air, a heinous crime against the environment, which could get you an even bigger fine. Maybe best just to stay at home under the duvet, work from bed, because that is the world of work. The world of work. <sighs> it's just so tiresome, isn't it? Um, the panel are back with me. We've got the front pages of the papers. Um, Megan, you want to kick us off with the Telegraph front, uh, front page splash? Navy has so few sailors, ships must be scrapped. It's a really good story, it's, but it's very frustrating mm. because um, everyone's been warning about this for some time. Right. And alongside those warnings, um, I think this, uh, a defence committee actually did a report titled, we're going to need a bigger navy, quite whimsical. Um, but, yeah, so we've also been warning that our defence priorities and international relations priorities are going to involve... China, the Indo-Pacific, yeah. Taiwan, all things we're going to need a navy for. Um, look at what's happening right now with Iran and the Red yeah, Sea. Yeah, with the Houthis and all yeah. that. Yeah, so this is just an enormous oversight by the government and it seems like uh, as things are getting more dangerous and the world is heating up and our priorities are going further afield, um, our defence posture is shrinking. Mm. Well, it's funny, isn't it, because just before Ukraine happened, the army and the, and the Ministry of Defence were all talking about how, oh, we don't need, you know, traditional weapons anymore. Mm -hmm. It's all going to be cyber. It's all yeah. going to be about, you know, intelligence-led, um, you know, defence. And it's all going to be about ensuring that you can, we can't be attacked and, and mm -hmm. computers can't all be wiped out. But actually, it's gone the other way, isn't it? Completely the other it's way. now completely, you want hardware, you want bodies, you want boots on the ground, and you want, you know, ships, planes, And we actually waste a lot of money um, scrapping things and then rebuilding them right. with the MOD because um, the budget is so tight right now, and I do have some sympathy for the MOD that's been dealing with this for a while. The budget is so tight that things just get parked and then they get picked back mm. up again. Um, and... Yeah, the, our Navy actually can't do an awful lot, as no. it is. If you actually read the reports... Well, I, to be honest, I didn't think we had many ships. We don't. And the hypothetical war zones that a lot of academics create and they actually show what can be done with our Navy, it's quite terrifying, yeah. actually. It is pretty depressing. A um, couple of people going with some NHS stories. The Times have got doctors told the NHS belongs to all of us, not just you. Uh, and this is the NHS talking to the... Um, BMA and the, and the junior doctors. Also, the Telegraph, striking doctors are being warned that the NHS will start formally collecting evidence of the harm to patients caused by their refusal to help struggling hospitals. This is a bit of a row now, isn't it? Because uh, the hospitals are saying, we've asked them to come back in. We had an agreement. A&E departments are being damaged. The BMA is saying, yeah, but you're not trying hard enough to bring in other mm. people before you come to us. It seems like the arrangement is they have to prove to them that they've gone to other yeah, sources, whether right. it's the consultants. And yeah, it all seems very petty, doesn't it? It does, but that's the nature of this row, isn't yeah. it? It's devolved down into the government won't speak to the doctors until they drop the strike action, the doctors won't speak to the government until they right. actually come up and actually offer something. So we just ended up in this kind of stalemate. Yeah. In the midst of it, it's the you know the worst possible time. It is the worst possible time. So and I mean, lots of um, a request for them to leave picket lines. I mean, I've walked past Guy's Hospital for the last two days and about four times at various different times. There is no picket line, you know. They used to be in the summer, but they don't like picket lines, I guess, when it's raining and it's wet and it's not very nice. So they're not actually, you know, doing this, in my view, to, to, to do anything other than prove a point. They're not really in solidarity with each other. They're just not working. Well, it would be interesting to see how long this holds up for, because obviously they're engaged in their own form of strike action, industrial action, but obviously, particularly when you're talking about public service, but 
especially the NHS. So much of this hinges on where are the public on this. Up yeah. until this point, it's been fascinating how much public support, even for the junior doctors, who necessarily yeah. aren't seen as fondly as the nurses and paramedics yeah. and so on, um, that has been holding up. But I do wonder whether this is the week. I don't think it's going to hold for the whole week. I just don't think it will because so many ordinary people are getting affected mm -hmm. by it. You know, um, Times has got this. France disappointed um, about the level of cooperation um, that Britain is providing to fight people traffickers bringing illegal immigrants across the Channel. This is a new one. This is according to the French state auditors who are presumably the people who have been receipt of uh, 222 million euros that we've sent them. Uh, they're saying they're not happy that we're not doing enough. What do it, they expect? It also doesn't make a lot of sense because the big problem with these deals with France to try and deal with small boats and so on has always been the fact that it's not really within their interest to help us out because the direction of travel is largely right. in one direction. And therefore, as soon as those boats take off, it's something that isn't their problem yeah. anymore. So for them to be like, actually, it's just the British who haven't really been holding up their end of the bargain. We really want to sort this out. We yeah. really want to make this work. It's just the fact that they've been intransigent and the Tory party and we all know what they're like. Yeah. It strikes me. It's just so Well, cool. I've spoken to people who have described the scenes in Dunkirk and other parts of northern France where busloads of, um, of migrants turn up. Uh, they get off the bus. Uh, they get onto dinghies. They take off and they come to Britain. And meanwhile, there's a bunch of gendarmes sitting in a car drinking coffee and smoking and just waving them off and going, cheerio, because Macron doesn't want them to stay, and the people who live in Normandy don't want them to stay, so why would they stop them? Yeah, it's not really in their interest to stop them, um, but, yeah, <laughs> that's... I just think we could be talking about this forever, aren't we? We could, like, yeah. Is there ever going to be a point at which we go, do you know what, they've stopped coming. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, I, I'm hearing a big narrative that I think we're going to hear a lot from, especially in the run-up to the next general election, will be... The idea that all of this could be solved if we just had closer ties with the EU, mm. then they would, you know, be oh. far more cooperative. I just don't buy that at all. No, I don't. I mean, it's, it's highly likely that if that were to happen, that we'd be more likely to be drawn in some kind of pan-European mm -hmm. deal, right. where in exchange for taking back some people, we take more. I don't see this being a kind of net decline. No. Um, yeah. You know, reg regardless. I mean, I think basically until we get to the deal with the actual push and pull factors. Yeah. Um, nothing is I think as long as people keep wanting to move from the place that they're in to live in Western Europe, yeah. there's really nothing we can do to stop them. Haven't um, arrivals in Europe gone up 80% yeah. this mm. year? Yeah. Italy alone went from 100,000 to uh, 150,000. And I think 000. Italy have now struck a deal with Albania, haven't they, to send yeah. some people back to Albania. Um, we've got, um, I think, um, is it Libya? Um, and the UN are now sending people to Rwanda, but we can't do it apparently because it's cruel. <laughs> even the UN says so, even though they're doing it themselves. But, I mean, the numbers of people just travelling across the world, even now from uh, the sub-Saharan African countries to America, you know, they're flying them over into, into Central America, they're going into Tijuana and coming into the US. Yeah. It's an extraordinary business that's being... Everybody's making money out of, apart from us. And it's also the fact that we're, you know, a globalised world with extraordinary technology that yeah. can tell people everything they need to make these journeys. Previously, there wouldn't have been the wherewithal um, for people to, for these kind of population no. flows mm. it's to amazing. happen. I mean, I almost, I, the, I, I just keep thinking that perhaps we need to go back and revisit some of the refugee convention and the legislation that dates back mm. to the early 1950s, yeah. when the world was a wildly different Which place. Which is a very different place. It yeah. took a lot longer to get around it as well. I suppose we should finish up just with a couple of Prince Andrew headlines. Top lawyer demands cops must probe Andrew sex claims. Front page of the mirror. Um, we said the sun, uh, time to give Andrew the chop. Um, it's going to be a pretty horrible weekend for Prince Andrew, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And of course, 
some of this is things that we've heard before. Obviously, if there's any fresh allegations which point to anything that's criminal, then of course that should be investigated. Yeah. But this is the tricky thing for the royal family. Yes, this is back in the news, but this is something which they thought they'd drawn a line under it. Yeah. You know, he was pushed out of formal royal duties. That was done pretty starkly yeah. and convincingly. He would just be the guy who would bob in the background right. at various family Christmas. events, at yeah. Christmas yeah. and so on. It's now feeling like that's not going to be enough. No. So what do they do? It's going to be tough to know because, I mean, poor old uh, King Charles. I mean, I say poor old King Charles, but I mean, it's like he doesn't need this, does he? I mean, he's only been in just over a year and now he's got to give up uh, all of this. Anyway, listen, great to see you all. Thank you very much indeed. Um, That's all from me tonight. You've been watching uh, The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to all of my guests, especially the panel who are still with me. And I'll leave you with footage of me jumping into the weekend. Good night. (laughs) 